0: Amen, and you may be seated. And I hope you have been blessed and encouraged by the truths that we have sung, right? He's a great God, and He can can change things. For those of you I'm not met, my name's Steve. It's my privilege to be the pastor here. And we are today entering into this new book study. We're taking the book of Revelation, the first section of it, we've entitled Letters from Jesus as what we have in revelation chapter one is jesus comes to john the apostle uh and john for the first time i mean saw him up on the mount of transfiguration but now in his eternal glory it's an incredible description of christ then in chapters two and three through John Jesus dictates letters to seven local churches that are there in Asia Minor or what we know as Turkey today and so um, we're, we're going to be jumping in now we just actually finished up this little mini series called what in the world is next looking at what the Bible tells us the major events are right I, and then of course this week happens I don't know about you, I did not have Chinese spy balloon on my bingo card, Uh, but what we've been looking at is the, the major event biblically that is yet to come is the second coming of Christ. It's really what the book of Revelation is all about. Uh, three weeks ago we looked at what that means And what leads up to that And what leads up to that are seven years of tribulation Which again is kind of the heart of the book of, of Revelation Two weeks ago we looked at the question of What happens after the second coming? We looked at the millennial kingdom for a thousand years. Jesus is going to rule and reign. Keep his promises that he's made to Israel, to Abraham, to David literally here upon the earth. Uh, Then Satan's loose for a little bit, uh, Revelation chapter 20, then the great white throne judgment, and then into eternity. Last weekend, what we looked at is the question of the rapture. The rapture is the god cause calling out of the church. And we looked at where it's found in scripture. We dealt with the question of when does it happen? Does it happen before the tribulation, during the tribulation, at the end of tribulation? So if you have questions and answers, I want you to turn there. But if you've been with us, or go back and check the video. But if you've been with us before, when we start a book study, one of the most crucial things to do is to gain the context right one of the things that we often say is context is king and if you've ever heard somebody uh, maybe a preacher maybe a friend uh, who takes a verse and it just makes absolutely no sense right Uh, for instance you do know Jesus said eat drink and be merry right he did Oh, by the way, he added, for tomorrow you die, right? But don't worry about that, right? You just, you you know, forget the context, right? Well, context is king. And not only the context of what's going on around it, but the historical context, of the book and why was it written and some of the theological issues that are involved in the book that you need to know and and probably to even understand where we're coming from where i'm coming from so today we're actually going to kind of talk about some of these issues and then next week we'll jump into the text here in chapter one but i hate to preach without reading the text and this text is so good so i just want to read the first seven verses and uh kind of set the tone for today so Revelation 1.1, 1, 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in them, For the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you, peace from him who is, who was, who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and releases us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. Amen. All right, so let's look at some of the background Uh, One of the first pieces you always want to look at is who wrote the book. If you were with us when we looked at Hebrews, that was a very interesting discussion. Not so interesting in the book of Revelation, because we just read I, John, right? John to the seven churches, verse 4. It's mentioned over and over in the book of Revelation that he is the one who wrote the book. So not a whole lot of debate about that. In fact, historically... It was probably two to three hundred years after that One guy questioned whether John really wrote the book And yet theologically he disagreed that there was a thousand years coming Which is in the book of Revelation over and over So kind of like he may have had an issue with that uh, so, uh, But John was the author what, Where there is a lot of question and debate is When is it written? and the reason is is that there is a certain perspective we're going to talk about on the book of revelation that it was prophecy when it was written but today it's history because it was fulfilled in AD 70 uh, when the romans came and they tore down the temple and they ransacked the city of jerusalem so they would look at an earlier date and we'll talk about that here in a moment but I think all of the evidence points to actually a much later writing of the book of Revelation, uh, someplace probably around 95, 96 AD. And that comes from both the internal evidence and some of the external evidence of of kind of what was going on. Well, first of all, the early church fathers kind of accepted this later writing— And to us, it kind of makes sense because it's the last book of the canon of Scripture. And you go to Revelation 22, and that warning, if anybody adds to the words of the book, and it just makes sense, it's not just about Revelation, but it's about the canon of Scripture that is complete. It's total. But when you look at what was happening, first of all, there's a lot of evidence that John remained in Israel, Jerusalem, in Palestine, probably until the mid-60s. If you remember in the book of Acts, the persecution came and it actually told us the believers were scattered everywhere except the apostles. And so what we believe is that John remained in Israel, remained probably in the main area of Jerusalem until probably the mid-60s when the revolt began against Rome. He then went to Ephesus was the elder there ministered to these churches in Asia Minor that's how he knew them then was sent to the Iowa Patmos because of his faith in Christ eventually went back to, to, to Ephesus and to be honest There's just not enough time If all of this happened in the mid-60s And he left to get there to be sent away It also doesn't make sense Because of what was happening politically So in the 60s Like when Hebrews was written Nero was the emperor And we talked Nero didn't like Christians Persecuted them But historically Most of the persecution of Christians By Nero was in and around Rome Was not in the far reaches of the kingdom if you get to the 90s the emperor there Domitian, he was the one who persecuted them everywhere so it kind of makes sense then if this is later he's had uh john sent to patmos and then when he dies in 96 john is able to go back not only that but there's another piece and in the book to, in the, the letter to the church of Laodicea, he, uh, and we'll see this when we get there, but some of you will know this, he, he talks about how you say that you are rich and increased in goods and have need of nothing, right? Does that ring a bell? And then John Jesus says, and you don't know, you're wretched and poor and blind and miserable, and you know you're in really bad shape. But what we know historically is that in the early 60s AD there was actually a major earthquake in that area of Laodicea. And the town was pretty devastated. So there's not enough time for it to have recovered, rebuilt, got all industry going again, and to be to that point by kind of mid-60s, it's just not possible. Again, it argues to a much later conversation that this happened probably in the late 95, 96. Third question, genre, well, he just told us right? In verse 3, blessed is he who reads and who hears the words of the prophecy. It's prophetic in its nature. So scripture has different genres. For instance, the, the, uh, the gospels are narrative. Uh, the book of Acts is narrative. You have the epistles. Uh, you have the, uh, the, the poetic, like the psalms, the proverbs. But you also have Those which are prophetic, uh, half of the book of Daniel, quite a bit of Ezekiel, Isaiah, the minor prophets. Revelation is the one New Testament book which is primarily prophetic, and that's what it claims to be. The the question, or or the the outline of the book is really simple. Hopefully by the time we get done with this, you're going to know it. It's actually found in verse 19. Therefore write these things which you have seen The things which are And the things which will take place After these things Really simple The things that you have seen This is this detailed description of Christ Chapter 1 The things which are That's the seven churches That's chapters 2 and 3 The things which are to come after these things That's chapter 4 To the end of the book Uh, Really up until the last couple verses In chapter 22 So That's the heart of the book. And of course, the big question is so, this is prophecy. What about interpreting the book? So, to cut to the chase, it's hard. All right, we'll move on to the next point. (laughs) It's hard, it's difficult. You see, prophecy is always hard. So you think of you think of Daniel who talked about uh you know the different animals that would come up, the lion and then the bear and the leopard and you know and then this beast. And and you have to imagine that in their day it was hard to see. But we look back at history and, and of course he tells us who it is, is Babylon, and then it's this bear who's kind of lopsided, and that's the Medes and the Persians, and now we we can see it all makes sense, right? But when it's given and it's still prophetic, it's hard. It's hard to connect all the dots. So when you come to interpreting the book of Revelation, a couple of things you gotta look at. First of all, are we gonna view it as that which is past? It's happened already, so it's more history. Is it present? Is what we're living in now? Or is it future? Now I mentioned last week where two or three are gathered together, there's a difference of opinion. And certainly within the Christian world, there's lots of different views. There are four major views. I want to share them just briefly. One, which, man, back even in Bible college, you didn't hear a whole lot. I mean, you knew about it, but there wasn't really highly espoused. And in the last probably 15 years, a couple of major Christian players in social media uh have kind of espoused this view, so it's much more... active today more people kind of holding to it is what's called the preterist view it's a historic view they would be of the opinion that this was actually written in the mid 60s and then it's literally fulfilled in 80 70 when the romans come and they conquer they would tie it to matthew 24 remember jesus and the disciples are sitting up on the mount of Olives looking over and jesus said and they said oh how beautiful and jesus said you know that's not gonna be one stone left upon another and so they said well tell us about it and what is the sign of your coming and then jesus launches into right wars rumors of wars and all that which is actually lays down next to the book of revelation so they're saying it was all fulfilled then and therefore uh it's it's past it's history that's how we ought to read the book of revelation The problem is is that when the Romans came and you look at some of the you know the plagues that were going to come and all that they don't line up secondly did you notice verse seven behold he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him so it is to be well Clearly, Jesus didn't return. So they kind of see this as the coming of Christ. And so, what they have to do then is kind of allegorize or make that more figurative and what's going to take place. It's just, it's, it's a Problem with their system. Another, which is more of an allegory way of looking at it, is the historist view, which is that Revelation is just a general history of the church, right? So the church is going to face persecution, and that's kind of what's described here. But obviously, when you come to interpretation, you can't take it literally, you have to allegorize it, right? So when you get to the big hailstones, that 's really not literal hailstones, or you get to this or that right you 've got to allegorize it it 's just this conflict that is going on between the world and the church as Satan attacks the church. The third view is what 's called the idealist view, which is really more almost mythological, and that is is that what revelation shows is just kind of the the universal generational battle between good and evil and the good news is is that the good wins at the end but that's what the book of so again very figurative and it's the way it interprets it and it is uh, you know we can't really take and look at it as something that's to come to the future the fourth view which is the view that we hold here as a church is the view I hold is called the future's view that revelation is prophetic just like it says and that these things are still to come right so chapter 4 verse 1 on has not happened yet and so what this allows us to do is this allows us to give it a literal interpretation just like we do the rest of Scripture. Just like we interpreted Hebrews, we can interpret Revelation. Just like we do Ephesians. Right, different genre, but we we do Now, one of the things about a, whenever you mention literal interpretation, especially when it comes to, you know, there's lots of pictures here, right? There's lots of imagery. What do we mean by a literal interpretation? What it means is this, that we interpret Scripture according to the principles of normal grammar right that the bible says what it says and within the historical context so behold he is coming in the clouds and every eye will see him even those who pierced on him we believe there's a day jesus is going to come back and every eye is going to see him And yes, even those who pierce. By the way, Paul might even mention, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, right? So we hold that literally that is going to take place and and is yet to come. So a literal interpretation means that we read it to the normal ideas of grammar within the historical context it's how you know we took the book of hebrews It's how we took the book of ephesians the book of john we could take revelation the same way now having said that when something then is figurative because obviously the bible has figurative language it's it's clear in the text that it is figurative in fact look on down to uh, verse 14 i think this is a great example his head and his hair were white like white wool so does jesus look like a lamb like snow his eyes like a flame of fire i mean are his eyes literally on fire his feet were like burnished bronze well you look at this and clearly what does it say it was like that it's telling us that it is a picture. It's telling us. It's not literally his eyes are on fire, but it's like that. So we're getting the, the idea of what's going on here. So when you, you get to the text, and sometimes in the book of Revelations, it, it'll say, here's the mystery. Here's the other thing, is that often in the book of Revelation, what you understand is it has lots of Old Testament references, so remember how Hebrews, you had to keep going back to Hebrews? but Hebrews quoted a lot of the Old Testament. Revelation just more alludes to it. So in the book of Revelation, there are 404 verses. And no, I didn't count them. I took somebody's word for that. But of the 404 verses, 278, so almost two-thirds of them, actually have an Old Testament reference. Right? They're picking up on something. So, what we do in a literal interpretation is we go back to the Old Testament references pulling from, and that gives us understanding to what it's trying to say. Sometimes we also see that the text itself will just explain what's going on. So, you have this description of Christ. Um, And one of the things it tells us Is that he's got uh, He's walking in the midst of seven golden candlesticks And he's got seven stars in his right hand That's my left hand Right hand And so you're going man what's that Well you just kind of keep reading And you get to verse 20 As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw on my right hand and seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches, right? So it tells us what it is. So with that, when we talk about a literal interpretation, it's this idea that God has revealed truth to us and he can make it knowable to us. Hard to understand and interpret, yes. But knowable, yes. Now here's the problem. And here's the problem with prophecy. Prophecy is way easier to understand when it's history, right? You can look back. So we've, the last couple weeks, have looked a lot at the prophecy of Daniel, about 69 weeks between the decree to uh, rebuild Jerusalem and Messiah the Prince. I'm sure when Daniel made that, it was like, you know, people even would have read it then. It's like 60, you know, 69 weeks. What are we doing? Well, okay. Well, we're here. It's all history now. So we know when the decree to rebuild Jerusalem was. It's in Nehemiah 2. We know when Messiah the prince shows up at the triumphal entry. Oh, by the way, there's 483 years. It makes perfect sense to us. God, when he revealed that to to daniel didn't give him all those details but it was still truth and he gave them what he wanted them to know i love the way peter actually addresses this topic he says ask to this salvation the prophets who prophesied what of the grace The grace that would come, made careful searches and inquiring, seeking to know the person or time of the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow so think of isaiah isaiah who talks about him coming and ruling and reigning with a uh ruling with a rod of iron and reigning and and everything and then you get to isaiah 53 but he was despised and rejected of men a man of sorrow did isaiah fully comprehend the two comings of christ the, the, the 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 issues of the cross probably not and it probably wasn't all that important that he did His prophecies were true We see them today So there's certain bits and pieces of this, right? Inquiring minds want to know, right? And we want to fill in all the dots and all the spaces But God's told us the part he wants us to know And some of it, you know, we get to heaven As best I understand, right? We get called out before the tribulation And we kind of get to watch this from up top, Right? And then we have those ah moments, right? And some of those ah moments he didn't tell us about. He knew, but it wasn't important for us to know. One last thing about uh, literal interpretation. And and I'm not speaking to anybody here because I know none of you would ever do this, but we got some people watching in online, right? Right? And the funny thing about hidden meanings is that it actually goes way back to the biblical times, right? You study the book of Colossians about they wanted hidden meaning, right? The Gnostics, they, they, they wanted, you know, that nobody else knew, right? They wanted to connect the dots, They wanted to make them. And, and, and I tell you, we as Christians tend to be really bad about that stuff. Last night I asked, you know, does anybody remember the Bible code? And all of a sudden they knew they were had, and nobody put their hand up. But you all remember the Bible code, right? That book that, and I, I never read it, it was, but it was about if you could take, you know, in the Bible, God has given us all these clues. And if you go to like the third letter of the fifth verse of every 22 chapters, and then you put them together, it's going to spell the name of the Antichrist. But then he died, and I oh don't know, I guess we were wrong. When we talk literal interpretation, uh, this is not for the tinfoil hat Christians, right? We're we're trying to understand what it is that God has told us, and to, you know, and sometimes to live in the thing that you know God hasn't given us a clear, you know, He didn't give us the name of the Antichrist right? But we're okay with that, right? Because he knows, but he's told us what is to come. Now, here's the piece. And this is to me, I've I've led all this up to this, because to me, this is the most important issue. So if you were with us last week, and we were talking about, there's different views of when the the rapture happens, Some believe it happens before, some in the middle, some at the end. And one thing that I said is, folk, in the grand scheme of things, other than if you're here at that time right you really want to be taken out before but biblically in the grand scheme of things it really isn't that important it's not that big of an issue and as Christians we we, we can you know obviously just agree and disagree on that it's fun but it's just not that big of a thing what I want to argue with you though is that A futurist literal interpretation of Revelation is really important because that's what leads to a premillennial return of Christ. This is all about how we study our Bible. If you're going to look at Revelation as literal sense you believe in Christ is going to come and set up his kingdom that's what it says to to turn aside from that means that you got to start to allegorize you got to begin to make it all figurative see there are three major positions when it comes to this thousand year reign of Christ the first one is called amillennial there really is no millennium it's just you know someday it's all going to be good it's not for a1,000 years, that was just, again, figurative of this time of peace. You know, my dad was such a staunch against a-millennial. He'd go to the doctor, the doctor would say, "Open your mouth and say, "Ah." He goes, "I won't do it. I won't do it." <laughs> kind of close to that are uh, those that hold a post-millennial. So yes, there will be a1,000 years. But Christ doesn't actually reign in it. He comes at the end of it. And you and I are the ones who actually usher in this kingdom. So as the church, as we evangelize and see people come to faith in Christ, that we create this utopian environment that's like the kingdom and for a thousand years and at the end of that Christ then comes and, and does that but again the problem that you have then is that you've got to take these scripture you've got to take revelation 19 and go that doesn't work right it just doesn't work so we have to we have to allegorize it or or make it say something that it doesn't the premillennial return takes revelation takes daniel takes matthew 24 at face value and says okay this is what's going to happen and that always leads us to the fact that this world is going to get worse jesus is going to come back he establishes his kingdom he is the one that brings in everlasting righteousness And so for me, the reason why this is so important and why I need you to understand this is our perspective because to me, this speaks about how do we interpret Scripture? And my concern is if we can start allegorizing, if we can start making everything figurative, then we can make Scripture say pretty much whatever we want. We have to live in the historic, literal context, literal interpretation And that leads us to then the truth that Jesus is coming back and setting up his kingdom. And my concern is this. There's actually a growing shift of people who are turning away from this. Um, Whether it's uh, the preterist view, in fact, uh, in in something that I do for our bigger association, I was reading somebody's doctrinal statement who was a preterist, and I've never read a doctrinal statement of somebody who actually believed this is all history. And it was quite fascinating to me because, literally, in his doctrinal statement, he said, We are living in the kingdom today. And I was so disappointed. I mean, I, I, I was expecting it to be a lot better. <laughs> uh, and then, be, at least it was consistent. I, I give him that. But the other piece was, and Satan today is bound. And I go, so what do you do with Ephesians 6? Right? Our, our, our warfare is not of this world, but it's spiritual, right? Put on the whole armor of God, all of that. See, we have to explain away. And again, a lot of times they're, they're good folk. In fact, one of my heroes, one, one of my heroes, a guy I looked up to, a guy I. Uh, just loving the Lord, uh, D. James Kennedy. He, uh, he is the one who put together uh, Evangelism Explosion. I taught for him for 20 years, man. I, I love him, but he, he was, and a lot of times in this post-millennial, it's really the, uh, it's a key piece of Reformed theology, and he, that was, was Dr. Kennedy's persuasion Was reformed theology And so we're going to usher in the kingdom And so this is back in the 90's And he would have all his teachers come in And again I love the guy He's a wonderful brother in Christ and, But every year he would give the same speech uh, And the guy Loved Gallup polling And so he would just talk about how We as a nation were just like Two to three percentage points away From turning the whole electorate To Christian truths And Christians are going to get put in And they're going to do all the right things And then we're going to get this utopia This is in the middle of the 90s And I'm sitting there going Hmm what's he seeing that I'm not Because it seems to me that it's getting worse And now we're what uh, 25 years down the line And uh, I would say We're probably not two or three points away From Christians turning the, the electorate what's interesting because there would certainly on the conservative Christian side on the liberal side there's the progressive churches out there today that it's, it's not about salvation of our, from our sins it's about salvation of the planet bringing in the kingdom it's about saving the planet and, and saving everything and, and getting rid of all poverty and again is Christ concerned about some of those things? absolutely but is that the message and is that us bringing in the kingdom? the answer is no And what I need you to understand is that to get to a a position that's other than a premillennial return of Christ, you've got to walk away from a literal interpretation of the book of Revelation. And my concern is, is the moment you do that, that changes your hermeneutics of how you study the Bible. So we're going to take it from a literal interpretation. It's still future. This is what he tells us. Let me finish with this. So why study the book of Revelation, right? It's hard. It's hard. A lot of debate about what it means. So, So why study it? Well, first of all, Revelation is the book that reveals Jesus in his glory. I mean, we've got Jesus here as The babe in Bethlehem. We got Jesus here as the gentle shepherd, right, who cared for people. We got him as the dying Savior. We've got him as the resurrected Christ in the Gospels. But it's not until you get to Revelation that you see him in his glory. Let's look again. Verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler, the kings of the earth. Oh yes, by the way, he is the king of kings and lord of lords. To him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. Isn't that cool that that picture of Jesus in his glory is still tied to the idea that he released us from his sins, our sins, by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom kingdom priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him and even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Folks, it's Jesus in his glory. It's the one we serve today. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he has not yet put all things under his feet as the writer of Hebrews reminds us. But he's waiting to that day, and that's when it's going to happen. So the book, just like the book of Hebrews, is meant to encourage us. Right? On the one hand, it's going to be tough here. On the one hand, things are going to kind of go from bad to worse, with what Paul tells us in the last days. Perilous times are going to come. Yes, it's going to be difficult, but persevere. It matters. Jesus is king. Jesus is going to set up his throne. Jesus is the one who is going to return. And so when you and I live for him today, even when it's difficult, man, it blesses us today because we get to know his peace, his purpose, his meaning, but it also blesses us. And so it's in the life to come. So it's a call to persevere. And did you notice with verse three? Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things that are written in them do you know that the book of revelation is the one new testament book that tells us that if we read it listen to it and heed it we will be blessed why because it's all about our two worldview it's the heart of the christian worldview Jesus is coming back. Jesus is going to set up his kingdom. We, we're, we're the bride of Christ, right? All of this mess that we live in. One day, Jesus is going to go make it all right. And so persevere, live. That great, great value today, but it also brings great value in the day to come. You will be blessed. And here's the thing, folks: Jesus came and died to release us from our sins. If you've not met Jesus as your personal Savior, you haven't experienced that, (laughs) that's way cool. To be honest with you, it is the best thing. And if Jesus was never to return, if none of this was in the Bible, just to know Jesus is your Savior, to be released from your sins would be the greatest thing in the entire world. And the cool thing is you can't earn it, you can't deserve it, you accept it by faith, you trusting in in jesus to be your savior but now you tie that with the fact he wins right and and we're going to be with him and we're going to get to enjoy all of that for all of eternity man put your faith and trust in jesus father we love you we thank you lord for your word we thank you for the way that it speaks to our heart Lord, I would pray that if there's someone here or somebody listening online who has not come to that point of putting their faith, their trust in you and Lord, being released from their sins because of the blood of Christ, that even in this moment they would cry out to you and invite you into their life to forgive them. Lord, you promised to everyone who would put their faith, their trust in you that you would, would forgive them and make them your child. And Father, for those of us that know you, may we be very careful to not just merely read or listen, but Lord, may we truly heed the heart of this book to live in light of your soon return. We look forward to that day. And Father, we know that as we, we do what you've asked us to do, Lord. That, that is where we will be blessed, both in this life and in the life to come. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, folk, as we're finished, we have folk over here at the prayer. If you've got some prayer needs, i would love to pray with you. If you maybe don't know what it means to invite Jesus to be your savior, man, we'd love to talk to you about that. God bless you. Next week, we'll jump into chapter one. Have a great week.